So verse 32 of Hebrews 10. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in very little, while the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. And then if you flip to Revelation 2, we'll be reading the letter of Smyrna, starting in verse 8. Do you guys a second? And it says in verse 8, Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into the prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jack. Um, it's interesting, a very famous statement. I bet you probably don't know. I'd be surprised if anyone in here knows who is the one who actually said it, but um, I hear people say it a lot, and I get what they're trying to say. I just don't think it's true. And the statement goes like this. Perception is reality. Perception is reality. Um, any of you know that it was Lee Atwater who first coined that term, a political consultant, surprise, surprise. Perception is reality. And, and the idea kind of went along, what he was trying to say was, if, if that's how people see you, and, and that's their opinion of you, then you might as well just be it, because that's what they think. Perception is reality. I get that we, we need to deal with maybe the way that we're coming across, but to just equate perception with reality um, really undoes Scripture. And what we actually see in the Revelation and what we actually see in these seven churches being instructed by God is that perception is not reality. And what God does is God reaches into our circumstances, God reaches into our situation, and then does something incredible. He reveals, he pulls back the curtain, and he says, what I want you to be aware of is not what you see, not perception, but what I want you to see is reality. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. God desires for his people to know the truth about sin and to know the truth about their enemy and to know the truth about deception and even the ability for us to be deceived without God's instruction, without God's assistance, without God's help. And interestingly enough, we actually see this repeated, this phrase repeated. Um, you, can, you can go there. Go to Revelation chapter 2 and just kind of look at those verses 
to the letter of the church or to the church in Smyrna, Jesus writes this letter, but he ends every single one of them. All seven letters end with this kind of challenge. Um, and, and we were encouraged by this last week, and we're going to be encouraged by it again. And, and what I want us to see is that what the Bible does, what God's purpose is, is to, on an ongoing basis, to make himself known, to reveal the truth about himself, the truth about ourselves, the truth about our circumstances. And, and then there is this there's invitation and challenge for us to reorient ourselves not around what we thought or what we perceive, but by what God has in fact revealed. And he says this repeatedly. Look at verse 11, and you'll see it at the end of every single section. Let anyone, see the invitation? Let anyone, any, anyone listening, anyone here, let anyone who has ears to hear, and, and that is kind of where we, we have to be very, very honest, maybe we don't have the ears to hear. Uh, maybe we're distracted. Maybe we're frustrated. Um, maybe we're close-minded to the things of God. Maybe we're so overwhelmed with the problems and the difficulties of this life, Jesus actually warns this. He, he warns in the parable of the sower that there are these, these weeds, these thorns that choke up. And, and what are they? It's the deceitfulness of wealth. It is the worries of this life. And it affects, it affects how, the, how, the, how the seed turns into, um, into wheat. But anyone, offer to all, who has ears to hear, listen. Listen carefully, listen intently, listen with the intentionality to keep or to obey or to follow. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, what I, I love about this letter or these letters um, is that not only do we get to hear the truth about ourselves, but some of the greatest lessons that I've ever learned was watching you make mistakes. One of the best lessons that I've ever learned is watching you succeed and do well. And I'm able, by looking at your example, sometimes good and sometimes bad, to realize that that I have an opportunity watching you struggle to know how to struggle well. And I have an opportunity to watch you struggle and, and to not struggle well on what not to do. Isn't that true? We all have that opportunity, and, and that's what Jesus pulls us into. That's what the book of Revelation offers to us. For absolutely everyone who has ears to hear, Let's listen to what the Spirit says to all the churches. Last week we learned this. We learned that in the midst of struggles and in the midst of difficulties, there are going to be those people who claim to be sent from God and they are not. And you and I need to do the hard work and the, uh, the submissive work to discern and to challenge those people who claim to be from God and are not and, and to recognize that and, and then to keep a distance from them. Now, that's one thing that we are to do. We are also to simultaneously, as we are doing that and we are caring for everyone around us that is doing that, listen up, parents, listen up, that to fr listen up friends, we are also to make sure that we hold on to the love that we had at first for God and for others, that we can't become poisoned when we realize that people aren't who they claim to be or pretend to be. 
we're not just going to give up. We're, we're not going to quit. We're not going to become hard-hearted. We're not going to become cynical. No, in, in the end, we're going to remain like open and honest, and we're going to remain persistent in truth, and we are going to do the hard work of loving others like Christ has loved us. And, and we're not going to become bitter, angry individuals. And, and that's what we learned from the church at Ephesus, and, and we need to hold on to that. And, and today we get an, an additional reminder, and, and one of the reasons why I, I think it's important for us to hear this lesson, because the lesson that we are about to hear this morning from the church in Smyrna is a lesson that we might not need today. Um, it's, it's a little bit of like a lesson that you give to an eight-year-old as you're trying to prepare them for college, and they're not able to listen to you, they're not able to kind of get a good sense, and so when you're telling your eight-year-old, you really need to be careful about the friends that you choose. And they're just not paying attention first day the ne- the, at the next grade. And, and there they are, and, and you're trying to give them the advice. Um, and, and you know it's not just for them when they're 8 or 9 or 10, but you're trying to, 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 to plant seeds in them. You're trying to give them words of instruction that will last with them for a very, very long time, but they have no idea the importance or the value. And, and most times we never really know the value and the importance of something until it's too late. And the remembering words that you and I get to hear this morning that Jesus offers the church in Smyrna is this. Remember the the model, how, and remember the victory, the what, of Jesus. Remember how Jesus was victorious. Look at how he endured. Look at how he persisted. Look at how he, in the midst of opposition, how did he respond to his critics? How did he respond to his enemies? How did he respond to his adversaries? Let's remember that, the model of Jesus. But by the way, Jesus isn't just here. He didn't just come to provide a model for us to follow, because if that was the case, it doesn't work that way. The model of Christ was never intended to be, by itself, sufficient to give us the ability to overcome, to give us the ability to avoid temptation, to give us the ability to turn the other cheek. How many of you know Jesus' example, and then when you found yourself in very similar situations or circumstances, failed? I did. I did. I knew what to do. I remember his example, and I didn't. I didn't flee temptation. I didn't quote scripture and then flee temptation. No, I stuck around, and I succumbed to it. I'm very grateful for the model of Jesus. But Jesus didn't just come to be an example. He came to accomplish what you and I could never accomplish. He came to do what you and I were powerless to do. There was just no ability for us to remain sinless. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. There was no ability for you and I, because we are sinful, to somehow escape the effects and the ultimate effect of sin, which is death. No, we all end up, because of our broken nature, in need of Jesus. And so what Jesus offers us is an example, and I'm very grateful for that example, and then he offers us victory, and I am exponentially more grateful for that. The fact that he did what I could not do. 
And so when you look at what Jesus is going to say to this church at Smyrna and to, every, to the seven churches, Jesus will give this, this kind of instruction, I, I know you and I see you and here's what I look at in you and it's good and, and, and he commends them for it. There are words, uh, or there are words of, of, of praiseworthy adoration that Jesus gives to Christians. And then Jesus continues, we saw this to the church at Ephesus, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that you do the hard work and that you don't actually tolerate evil. And then he says, but, and, and that's the difficult phrase, but, I, I, I hold this against you. He does that to every one of the churches. He holds something against them and he calls them to repent except for this church, not Smyrna. Smyrna, he, he doesn't have any negative things to say about them. I wonder why. Do you think it's because they were perfect? And do you think it's because they just had no need of correction whatsoever? I have a hard time believing that. I think maybe Jesus, in, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite discernment, knows that, no, they can learn lessons as they, as they hear and they listen to the other churches. They'll learn a lesson about what they could, how they could love better about Ephesus, or they could learn about how they could be less lukewarm like Laodicea. They, they could learn from the other churches, but for this church, I, I just have words of, uh, of hope, words of commendation. Who are you really careful with when, when you just realize, like, I just I don't want to upset them. I, I don't want to add any more to them than they're already bearing, and it's usually those who are troubled those who are going through difficult circumstances, and that's this church. That's why I think it's good for us to maybe listen this morning, not because you and I are going through specific persecution right now, not because we are facing specific opposition right now, but that we don't know when it will come. And just like the best time to plant a tree is what? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the next best time to plant a tree. By the way, the next best time to plant a tree should be like 19 years ago and then 18 if we're going by years. But they, 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 they fast forward all of that and they say what? It's today. And so the instruction that we're going to hear, since we can't go back and prepare our hearts and prepare our minds for opposition in the past, then, then maybe it's time for us today to, to hear and, and to maybe not look around and, and go, I, I don't know if I see how much I really need this. I, I know, like an eight-year-old, we, we don't fully understand or appreciate, but it doesn't make the instruction any less true. How many of you, if you could just back up two or three or four or five or six years, knowing that there would be a pandemic, would have done some things different financially? would have made different health choices, would have made um, different relational choices. I would have. I've been thinking about that. If I would have known. Well, what's fascinating is, is that, so what are, since, you, since you learned that lesson from, from like just a year or two ago, then, then what are you doing to prepare in the future? Oh, not much actually. No, no, no. What, what we are doing now is that we are realizing that Jesus is offering us some instruction that we may not need particularly today, but we still need it today. Jesus reveals himself in very specific ways to each of these churches in a ways that they need to see him. And, and look at verse 8. 
to a church that is going through difficulties, for a church that is going through persecutions and hardships. And I, I believe that's probably the reason why Jesus has nothing negative to say to them. He offers the picture of himself like this. Look at verse 8. Thus says, and he assumes this, thus says the first and the last. That's actually taken from Revelation chapter 1 where God, the Father, is described as the one who was and is and is to come. The first and the last. Jesus assumes that position. Only deity could do that. Thus says the first and the last. The one who was dead and came to life. And both pictures of Jesus are important for these Christians to hear. The one who was dead, he was dead. He, he was faithful to the point of death. But that's not where it ends. He comes to life. What they're drawing from here is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. G the first picture that we really see of Jesus is not him in all of his splendor. No, that's later on in Revelation chapter 1. The first picture of Jesus is actually found in verse 5 of chapter 1, and he is described, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the one who knows how to see through the lie, to see through the deception, the one who, if he had been in the garden, would have known to eat of that fruit, would have surely brought death, and he wouldn't have eaten it. That's the Jesus. He is the one who is the faithful witness. And then it goes right behind that. To be a faithful witness, the book of Revelation describes, makes Jesus the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Literally, that means that when the resurrection happens, not, not the resurrection at the end of time, that's, no, that's, that's the other resurrection, this is the firstborn of the resurrection. It means that Jesus Christ, when he says... To Mary and to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will never die, is not talking about an event, but he's talking about the one behind the event. To literally pull back the curtain and to see that who is orchestrating all of this is not fate, and it's not circumstances, and it's not the deceiver, and it's not the enemy. In fact, it's God. God is the one. And therefore, when Jesus dies, death could not hold him. Now, death is subservient to him. And Jesus Christ becomes the firstborn from among the dead. He's also described in the Bible as the first fruits, meaning when you bring in the harvest, the first fruits tell us what is to come. And Jesus is the first of that. He is the one who provides the context of victory and overcoming, and that is something that this church needs to hear. That Jesus Christ, in fact, was the faithful witness who was the one who died and came back to life, who was the firstborn from among the dead, but not only that, look at what else it describes him in verse 5, is what? And the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the firstborn from among the dead, I know what it's like, and I am also the ruler of the kings of the earth. I can't read this verse and not somehow transport my mind to a conversation that Jesus has with an earthly ruler in John's gospel. Do you guys remember this? Jesus and Pilate get into this confrontation. Pilate, who is a ruler of a, 
of, of, of an area, of a, of a kingdom. If we call, He's a governor, but he's a ruler. And he's trying to engage Jesus in a conversation, and Jesus isn't really interested in the conversation. And Pilate says to him, do you not understand who I am? Do you not understand? Perception, by the way, is not reality. Have I said that? Pilate says to Jesus, who's dressed like a king, but clearly has no power, how could Jesus have any power and allow himself to be treated like that? Clearly, like if, if he could have done anything, he would have done something instead of realizing that what Jesus was doing was far deeper and was far greater than just defending his own rights, defending his own life, stopping the hand that was about to strike him, grabbing the whip that was poised to strike his back. Shutting the mouths of those who are mocking or spitting on him. And Pilate says to him, do you not know who I am and the power that I have? I, I love that scenario because for those of us who know what is about to happen, just know the irony in that statement. Do you not know who is standing in front of you? Pilate. And Jesus says to him, because he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, you, you, Pilate, you have no power except that which is given to you. That's, by the way, the theme of the book of Revelation. That everything in the world that would oppose God, that everything in the world that would fight against the children of God only has that power because God in his divine sovereignty permits it or allows it. It's got no intrinsic power or value or worth in itself. Perception is not reality. And so Jesus, who is the faithful witness, who is the firstborn from among the dead, who is the king of the rulers of the earth, says to this church, I want you to see me. And it's interesting because in this moment, it's a picture of the power of Christ. I came back to life. Is it vulnerability? Is it that Jesus is vulnerable? Or is it somehow that Jesus is fighting for the glory of God and for the benefit of all who would believe? A victory that comes through his death. For indeed... Anybody who sees Christ in his full splendor has no ability to stand in front of him. It was Jesus dressed in, in human form that, that somehow uh, deceived the minds of those who just saw him as just like any other man. Indeed, the fact that he was a man caused them to slander him or to say that when Jesus claimed to be God, that he was blaspheming. Jesus actually got into this debate one time, and, and Jesus said, for, for what? You want to pick up stones to stone me? For what good thing that I've done do you want to stone me? And they responded back, it is not for any good thing that you've done, but it is the blasphemy, it is the slander, same word by the way, it is the blasphemy that comes out of your mouth that you, being a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus dressed fully in his, human, in his humanity kind of uh, lulls them into a false sense of security, a false sense of hubris. Humanity can do that. 
It, it really can confuse us to the point where we don't see God the way that we should see God. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our, our hearts and our minds to see beyond the shadow or beyond the curtain or beyond the flesh into what is truly happening. That's the beauty of the revelation. But when Jesus is revealed in his splendor, still in chapter 1, look at what happens when John sees him. This is John's, remember John's the one that Jesus loved? John's the one that's so close to him? John's the one that's in the inner circle? John's the one that God permits to write all of these? Like John, John of all the apostles, John's the one that we just look at every time he just seems to be sick. John's the one who's there at the cross. He's not the one running and hiding because he denied Christ. John is the one, and Jesus says to John, I want you to take care of my mother. That's John. And John sees Jesus in the Revelation, and it says this, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When he sees Jesus in his splendor, and then the he here is Jesus, laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. That is such a typical picture when God approaches humanity in his fullness. That our natural tendency is to be overwhelmed. And his kindness and his gentleness and his goodness reaches out and says, don't be afraid. Like, I get why you are afraid. And in a very real sense, you should be afraid. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to be teaching on this in a few nights um, on, on Wednesday night, so I'm going to be teaching a lesson on that one of the reasons why, this is a little bit of, a, of an aside, but it fits this text and it really does kind of point. I'm, I'm going to want to be teaching a lesson on the fact that I think the, one of the reasons why so many of us are so fearful is because we don't know what it actually means to fear God. That increasingly, they predicted this, by the way, hundreds of years ago, that the more we removed God from the center when you don't know how to fear the right thing, you end up fearing everything. If it wasn't for the fact of reality, because that seems to be so true in my life, to, to not know to fear God means to succumb to all of the fears that are around me. And Jesus reaches out and he says to John, I'm here. In all of my splendor, in all of my greatness, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And therefore, don't be afraid. And then what does he say about himself? For I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I have. Do you see in my hand, John? I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hades, by the way, is, is, the, is the place known as the, the, the place of the dead, the repository of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's known as Sheol. It's not hell. It's Hades. It's the, it's the place that, that holds the dead. And, and Jesus says, like, I have it in my hands. Now, now do you see why there's no reason to be afraid? Now, now do you see why in the presence of the fully exalted, glorified Christ, we, we find a context, not just for death, but for life. And so Jesus says to this church that is struggling, 
And Jesus says to this church that is just trying to make sense of it, and he has no words of rebuke. He just has words that reveal, first of all, that he knows. Now, we'll see this a lot in the book of Revelation. We'll see this phrase, he knows. And he says to the church at Ephesus, I know your works. But he doesn't say that in this. In, in this text, he doesn't say, I know your works. The kind of knowing that Jesus has in this one is not, I know this about you, which, by the way, is true. Jesus knows everything about us. But he comes alongside the Christians at Smyrna, and he doesn't say, I know about you, Mike. He doesn't say, I know about you. Jesus comes alongside and says, I know. Like, I, I know your affliction, and I know your poverty. That's, that's not just, I know you're afflicted, and I know that you're poor, and most likely that means physically poor. It's not just that. It's like, I, I know what it's like to be afflicted. Like, I know what it's like to be poor. Isn't that neat? And then Jesus goes on. I, I don't know what words you want to use. I, I couldn't find one. I, you can, anybody tell that I found a thesaurus on my computer? Jesus knows slander and harassment and mistreatment and maltreatment and oppression and victimization and abuse and persecution, and martyrdom. Jesus knows it. He knows it about them, and he knows it. Is that not fascinating? Jesus actually did not come just so that he could remain removed and detached. But no, he, he, he became like one of us. Jesus knows what it's like. We, we could never say to him, you have no idea what it's like. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals over the last few months. And I had a lot of people ask me question, where is God? Where is God? And I was reminded of a time, I had a friend years ago who lost two children. And the second child that was actually passing away, I mean, he, was, he wasn't like a little child, but the second child who was passing away, he was a minister. And while he was in the hospital, he was there not only just ministering to his family, but trying to minister to the other people who were at a very, very, very difficult time in their lives. And one of those gentlemen, I can understand this, but this gentleman was very angry at God. And he, he said to my friend, he just said, um, where is God in all of this? My son is dying of cancer, and where is God in all of this? And he responded back. He said to him, and remember, he already lost one child and was about to lose another. My friend was. And he said to him, as far as I know, he's exactly where he was when his son died. I'm not trying to, to get you to feel sympathetic to God. We're not. He didn't do that so that we'd feel sorry for him. But he did that as a demonstration of his love for us. You can't say to God, you don't, you don't know. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be lied at. You don't know what it's like to, to, to feel like just harassed all the time. Like Jesus, you have no idea what it's like to be a victim. You have no idea what it's like. To have people say negative things about you and to just feel like there's just no hope. You have no idea what that's like. No, Jesus knows. He knows 
that the church in Smyrna is going through it. And, and he knows firsthand what it's like to go through it. Hebrews chapter 12, Jack read from Hebrews chapter 10, but Hebrews chapter 12 continues. So 10 describes what they're going through. I thought that was a very interesting few verses in 10. And then 11 is a list of all these people who remain faithful. And then 12 says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, it says this, so now we should consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that we won't grow weary and give up. I don't know how, how, how much you need that today. I would have to guess that the majority of us, and actually I would say all of us don't understand what they're going through. All of us don't know exactly what through the people in Smyrna are going through. But to some degree, I think some of us right now can understand kind of what it feels like to be slandered or harassed or to be a victim, to be mistreated. And I'm just going to ask you this. How much do you find encouragement in the example, but not just in the example, but in the victory of Jesus? For he's not just saying, I went through it. So we can just sit together and we can sit in the mud and just say, we're mud people. No. I overcame in, in me, you can actually find victory. Jesus overcame. This is the powerful lesson of the revelation. Jesus overcame slander and harassment and mistreatment and maltreatment and oppression and victimization and abuse and persecution and martyrdom. These are words that we're hearing a lot in our culture, and it's so interesting how much people, including myself, want to help people out of it apart from Jesus. No, it's about empowerment. It's about education. It's about reconstructing society. That's what it's about, really. Because the gospel seems to say it's about Jesus. That's why the responsibility of the church isn't just to make bad things go away, but literally to create a counterculture where such things don't exist. And we do so by repenting. We do so by lifting up the example of Jesus. We do so by pointing them to him and to the purposes of God. We do so by helping people realize that perception is not reality. And their circumstances are not the final word for, for what does Jesus say to the people in Smyrna. I, I know your affliction and your poverty. And then this is the switch. And then it says, but you are rich. I know your affliction and your poverty, but you are rich. See, so often when, when, we, when, we, when we have friends who are hurting, we only know how to sympathize with them. And by the way, I think that's a great first move. I think it's a great first move. I just, I don't know if it's our only move. For any of you that have had children, you know this. I, I know when to just come alongside my sons and to just sympathize with them. And then there comes a time in, in which hope has to enter the equation. We see this in the Psalms. I, I get it. There are moments of desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's also moments of victory. The Psalm ends with a proclamation of praise to God. 
And so Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, not only do I know the affliction, and not only do I know that you're going through this affliction, but I actually see the truth about you, and you are rich, and you are rich because I have overcome all of the terrible things. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11 says it this way, speaking about Jesus Christ, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, Pilate, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, Sunnybrook, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He overcame through obedience. He learned obedience through suffering. And then he had victory. There was a young man in that congregation, if church history tells itself right, there was a young man in the congregation in Smyrna who, who later on in the year 156 is going to die as a martyr. Some of you may know this story. His name is Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and in 156 he is tied to a stake and is burned to death. He is told before, if, if you recant Christ, if you deny Christ, if you let go of Christ, we will free you. And, and he gave the great quote, 86 years I have served my Lord and he has done me no harm. How can I deny him? And he dies. No, he lives. He was most likely 20 years old sitting in a congregation probably like this. And he heard this letter being read. He would have been about 20 years old. I am the first and I am the last. I was the one who died and I came back to life. And Jesus actually points out that the one who remains faithful to the end, the one who remains persistent through it all, like me, will receive a crown of life. Polycarp said this, I mean, his, his famous quote, like at, tied to the stake, is one of, one of the greatest quotes. But I found this one, I, I loved it, in a sense, even more. This, he said this while he was living. Let us, therefore, forsake the vanity of the crowd and their false teachings and turn back to the word delivered to us from the beginning. How did he learn in that most difficult moment to trust in Jesus, because he had spent his life trusting in Jesus. Let us therefore forsake the vanity of the crowd and their false teachings. He's holding on to this letter. You're going to be persecuted, Smyrna. You're going to be afflicted. And it's going to happen for 10 days. That 10 days means it's going to be a short time. It'll feel like forever, but it's going to be a short time. And I want you to know that those who remain and those who overcome will actually receive a reward. Not only does Jesus know and not only does Jesus overcome, but then Jesus rewards faithfulness for those who receive slander and harassment and mistreatment and maltreatment and oppression and victimization and abuse and persecution and martyrdom. Jesus rewards it. He says in verse 10, be faithful to the point of death. Christian, remain faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. There are two words for crowns. One of them is the crown that is given to royalty. 
right? The ones who are seated on, seating on, the, seated, seated on the throne. That's a crown. This is another kind of crown. This is a crown that is actually given to those in, um, in some kind of a competition for remaining faithful and being victorious. This is that kind of crown, a Stephanos. To those who are faithful to the point of death, I will give the crown of life. And, and then he says to us, and again, I, I don't know how badly you need to hear this because I don't know how present slander and oppression and mistreatment and abuse, I, I don't know if you're trying to find ways out of it. Um, I, I learned in, at a very young age how to avoid being mistreated. And, and my way of doing it, I don't know if this is your way of doing it, was just trying to fit in with everybody else. Oh, if you want to say that about me, I'll stop being that way. Oh, you want to, you want to try to exclude me? Fine, I'll, I'll be like what you want me to be. Church, that cannot be us. I don't know how when, I, I don't know how long, or I don't know when difficulties are going to arise where they're like the situation for the church in Smyrna, but probably like a 20-year-old polycarp. We need to now commit to forsake the vanity of the crowds and all of their false teachings and return to a dedication to the word of God, believing that he is, in fact, worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness to us, for your revelation, for the goodness of Jesus. We thank you for his example, but more than that, we thank you for his victory. For if he was just an example, we would have all failed. If he had just died of old age and did not assume the responsibility that you had given him to be our sanctification, to be our atoning sacrifice, Father, we would be lost. And therefore, I pray that in light of our Savior and those who have died faithful, that, God, we would take to heart the hope that we have in Jesus. God's people said,